Investors Chronicle. Companies and Markets podcast is Thursday, the 13th of October. Welcome back, listener. Delighted to be joined on the panel by Arthur Sands. Hi, Arthur. Hi. Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Hello there, John. Julian Hoffman. Hello. Hello there, John. And as usual, our host, Dan Jones. Dan, what's coming up today? Hi, John. Uh, yeah, we're quite tech-focused uh, today, this week. We are starting by talking about uh, pollsters, uh, but YouGov specifically, rather than uh, political shenanigans. Then we've got our cover story on how to pick software winners. Uh, there's been a big sell-off in the space this year, obviously, but plenty of companies trying new things and um, trading on slightly more attractive valuations now. Uh, and finally, sticking with the theme, we will be discussing the latest twists and turns in the Elon Musk versus Twitter saga. Excellent. Looking forward to that. Before we get there, though, a quick roundup of the news from the week. Uh, renewable power companies will have their revenues capped in England and Wales, with the government looking to clamp down on runaway profits. It's been described as a de facto windfall tax, although not by government ministers, it should be said. It means renewable companies could end up with a higher tax bill than oil and gas producers, something described as perverse by one boss within the sector. Uh, the threshold for taxation has not yet been revealed. Research firm Kantar has said that shoppers could be paying on average an extra £12 a week for their groceries. The survey also showed the price of a weekly shop rose 13.9% in September compared with the year before, marking a record high since Kantar started recording data. The pound fell again on Wednesday after comments from Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey that ruled out the bank propping up the UK gilt market beyond Friday or today for you, listener. However, this has reportedly been contradicted privately by officials, leaving markets not really knowing which way to look. Companies' movements this week, house builder Barrett Developments has said that demand for houses has dropped by a third, citing wider economic concerns from its customers. Shares fell 9% on the news. After keeping production running all through the war, Ukrainian iron ore miner for Expo has finally had to pause operations after a missile strike cut its power supply shares down there 10%. However, shares in DS Smith jumped 11% on Monday after the packaging company boosted its profit forecast for 2023. Packaging companies, though, have struggled so far in 2022. DS Smith down 31%, Smurfit Kappa down 38%, and McFarlane 35%. Newspaper and online media group Reach saw its growth in print and digital sales in July and August wiped out in September. The company received a boost in traffic and advertisement income after the death of the Queen, which has since abated. Reach is trading down almost 75% since the start of the year. And finally, you may have heard about the high-profile cheating scandal in the world of chess that's been in the news recently. Well, if you're looking for more exposure to the sport, World Chess PLC, a company that organises chess tournaments, is planning a London IPO by the end of the year and has already lined up £7 million in investment. Over to you for the rest of the show, Dan. Thanks, John. Well done for persevering with your uh, cold. Although, as you say, it gives you a gives you a good podcast voice. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna start, as I say, with YouGov, uh, one of the biggest companies on AIM, despite losing half its value this year. Obviously, it's best known for its political polling, uh, which at the moment is really underlying the the general mess that we won't go into this week. But as is often the case, that's not what the business is really about. Uh, it's about different kind of research and data and 
Uh, expansion into other areas and other territories as well. It had its full year results this week. Uh, Julian, you covered those. Uh, generally, the news was once again pretty good, but there's a couple of uh, uh, things to flag uh, at the top. Uh, it was it was Gemma who covered them actually. So yeah, oh. uh, I, I wish I could write as beautifully as Gemma can, but oh, well, um, we'll just we'll have to wing it then. I think Julian will preview them. Yeah, the, yeah I, I, right. I, I previewed them. That's right. Uh, it was a very contradictory set of results in a way because the the actual operating um, performance of the company was, by most definitions, excellent. So you know, profits are up. Uh, sorry, revenues are up by more than a third. Profits uh, in a similar area, and um, they seem to be making good on their pledge to expand in America. The, the really weird thing was the the share price fell five percent on the day, and and it seemed to have been linked to the fact that the chief executive Stephen Shakespeare has decided to hang up his boots after all his polls after twenty two years from founding the company in in two thousand, um, along with um, uh, Chancellor for a day, Nadim Zahawi. Um, and, and that seems to have spooked investors, and it, it, sort of, it was a very un, sort of unnerving experience writing about that in a way, because you, you just then it sort of it underlines how febrile the markets are at the moment. Because any kind of news, even as mundane as a as a, as a management succession, seems to be the cue to sell anything off. But it, it also raises a question of how reliant uh, companies are on their founders for their direction and. Um, for their continuing appeal, uh, and then yeah, we were going to talk today a little bit today about how that um, how that might affect it. But I mean, you go yeah, the, the the shares now are probably the cheapest they are in about four years in terms of rating. So they've got a forward rating of about twenty two, uh, and I mean, I would say arguably there's a really good value case there if they can keep that operational performance going next year. And uh, I suppose the big question is whether the um, the forecast recession in various markets, if that really takes hold in the US, whether that will dampen down the the demand for their sort of consumer research uh, services. But you know, history tends to suggest that that, that holds, holds up very well because companies want to fi- find out why people aren't buying their products as much as why they want to buy them. So they, they, they have a certain cyclical um resilience uh, i would argue but um yeah yeah, it, yeah. It's a very it's a very it was it was an interesting result but a very very strange one really for investors to, to get a hold on yeah i think that last point um is relevant as well because you know experience of the show is that uh, marketing budgets or anything that can be used to uh, maintain market share if not grow it during a downturn that they very often go up they very good, and you know history has shown this as well. I thought it was interesting as well because I mean he's just he's moving sideways. He's going he's going to chair uh, the board after that. But um, I guess the point with um, him, you know, as a founder of the, the company itself, he's seen it through two decades of um, you know drastic change in the way that we uh, go about market research uh, and collate and uh, use information as well. Um, and I, I think, as you alluded to before, it, it falls under the sort of general heading of uh, uh, succession risk, really. And there's and there's some potential uh, negative aspects linked to that. Uh, the, the trouble is, if you if you can't, you know, fill that role uh, satisfactorily within an accepted time frame, you gov will, of course. But if you don't, then there's uh, the focus on uh, existing roles. Can lead to um, uh, a misalignment with 
future business needs of the company or a company. Well, it's a sign of maturity as well, isn't it? I mean, let's face it. I mean, they've been going for more than 20 years. So it's, yeah, the, yeah. the fact that they have probably have to change uh, the senior management is is a sign that uh, the company is growing in stature. And then, you know, the fact that the PE is healthy starting to come down so consistently is also a sign that uh, the, the market views it as a mature business. Yeah, I, th- I think that, that the main risk is anything that's time, happens to be time critical. And it's the it's the sort of, the the interim period between uh, a board change and and you know filling that critical role too, um, but yeah, I mean, what is what is YouGov now? I mean, it, it's it's uh, it has become under his uh, direction uh, a data analytics platform, uh, sort of a cloud based one as well. So you know, there's been a profound change during that period, uh, but presumably. There's been other people involved, you know, beyond uh, Mr. Shakespeare. Um, so, yeah, and I, I would I would take your point as well that it it does seem the markdown is pretty difficult to fathom uh, the extent of it. I think Dan said that it's down by it's halved over the last uh, or since the beginning of the year, and down slightly less about by about a third over the last twelve months, uh, which is which is difficult to um, to appreciate really. I guess, you know, these kind of companies, when you're on a very high PE, obviously the onus is on you to prove you can deliver those kind of growth rates that people expect. YouGov's, you know, its interim results are very strong in January and these results are very strong as well. So it is doing that. So I guess that valuation is really, you know, a, um, a function of interest rates rising and, you know, the, the present value of those cash flows falling. But yeah. I, I suppose the question is, which leads on to the, the kind of maybe discussion about the founder and leadership as well is, you know, investors in the business might be thinking, well, what is the catalyst going to be for a change then? You know, it's still performing very well operationally. It's US pushing for the US seems to be doing quite well. Maybe in some ways, you know, despite everything Shakespeare has done for the company and obviously the fact he's still going to be there, maybe a new new management could, uh, could prompt something. You know, they've got a capital markets day, I think in the spring, will be shortly after the new chief exec joins. So, you know, perhaps perhaps that could be a time when you know a new person can outline their vision, and and that, and that could prompt a bit. But it shouldn't. It shouldn't in really. You shouldn't in theory have any difficulty keeping it going. I mean, unless they do mm. something crazy like buying a petting zoo or uh, <laughs> to add to the business. It's not. A, it, it, you know, it's capital light. It doesn't mm. have that many assets. All of the intellectual property is in the algorithms that they could produce for their research. Uh, they have a lot of experience of it. I mean, they've been around since the days when we all used to surf the net with Alta Vista. I mean, that's going back a bit. Yeah. Um, so it's, I mean, I don't think they're going to have any any issues. I mean, it's just really a question of can they manage, uh, you know, can they manage the transition to being a mature business? I mean, that, that, you know, it, it suggests to me that they'll they'll probably get someone in with a lot of experience, maybe they, a knighthood. <laughs> they, they have just uh, going, launched yeah. it. Survey Direct uh, business as well, which is a, a, a self-service tool for for businesses and uh, institutions, and um, that that sort of points to the direction the business has been going in or will continue. It's, it's sort of far more of a, a, a bespoke offering now, and I think it had to change given uh, what's happening in the wider uh, marketing frame. When you look at um, you know, online platforms like uh, Google, uh, Facebook, Stroke Meta. Um, so yeah, it's 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 
more and more of that data is going to be collected in-house by companies and uh, it'll be used um, on, a, on a bespoke basis, I think. Yeah, but, you know, it's interesting. I mean, just, you know, Shakespeare is an interesting character. I mean, I, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, his personality does loom in it. I, mean, I was looking him up uh, before we started the podcast and he'd, you know, he, the, the reason why, for example, that we have so many documents available on the gov, the gov.uk website where it's, you know, it's very easily searchable and all that, and that's all down to his recommendations. I mean, so he's had a, he's obviously had a very wide uh, influence in sort of data space, isn't it? So you can, from that point of view, you can, you can see why, why investors would immediately be, be nervous about the direction of the business because obviously you're handing over from someone who has who has that very very deep and wide background in it. But yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes businesses just run themselves. I mean, there isn't. And yeah, he's still, he's still got significant. Someone has up the account. The other, I suppose, he's quite rare in some ways. He combines, uh, seemingly combines, you know, this data analytics with uh, an artistic background. I was reading he was a. Uh, once part of the fluxus group of artists, including oh, right. John Cage and Yoko Ono, in his youth, so you know, quite a, <laughs> quite, a, quite a change um, to uh, to go into data analytics. But he's made a good, uh, he's made a good fist of that as well. Um, let's uh, let's move on to to our, our next segment. Um, looking at speaking of you know businesses that are or were trading on pretty uh, elevated valuations. Our cover story this week is about software and how to pick software winners. Uh, in particular, looking at things like software as a service. Um, Arthur, Arthur Sants, our tech correspondent, has written this piece. And, and yeah, it's a similar story as with YouGov. You know, the, these companies have seen big valuation declines over the past year, but there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, Arthur. Um, the crucial thing for investors in many ways has kind of spurred the rise of the sector is the fact that, you know, these are subscriptions, these are recurring revenues, ideally, um, and, and therefore, you know, it, in theory, a lot more stable than if you're just buying a one-off products. Software as a service is the kind of quintessential example of a sector where valuations got ramped up hugely over the past few years and have really come crashing down to earth this year again. You know, there's a difference, suppose, and it seems to be between US and UK companies and how the market treats them, how their respective markets value those companies. Yeah, so the sort of metric that investors are very interested in is ARR, which is annual recurring revenue. And the way you measure that sort of varies. And this is kind of another theme in the sector is that these metrics they've come up with are measured in different ways by different companies. But sort of the premise of ARR is that um, it's annual contractual revenue. So if you've signed a contract in the last month of that reporting period, for example, but that contract runs for three years, you would then add that into your ARR figure at the end of the period. So the ARR is saying next year, how much you expected to make from the contracts that you've currently signed up to. Um, and in the US, they were obsessed with growing ARR as quickly as possible. And they would look at ARR, so um, price the ARR multiples, and um, companies would try and push up their recurring revenue figure as quickly as possible. And part of the reason for that is that once you've sort of got one software provider it's a pretty sticky product so it's once you've gone through the whole set of like process of setting up with one software company it's unlikely you're going to switch because it's very expensive as tsb proved the other year it's extremely expensive to do a big software overhaul without something going disastrously wrong so usually once you're sort of set up with one software provider changing over is 
unlikely. So the US companies wanted to ramp up the number of contracts they had, the number of customers they had as quickly as possible, and didn't really care very much about profitability. So they'd spend loads on marketing and try and ramp up the AR figure. In the UK, and investors would sort of, the multiples were extremely high for companies that actually weren't profitable, but just had fast growing ARR. In the UK, it's been a, because of just the way the UK market is, um, investors are a bit more discerning. UK companies have been a little bit more cautious about that and haven't pushed the sort of um, transition to cloud and pushed the ARR growth as much and have been more wary about protecting their profitability. And then when companies have sort of gone down the route of investing heavily in marketing and trying to grow that ARR number at the risk of having lower profitability, they've usually been sort of slaughtered by the market. So Dark Trace is a good example. They're a cybersecurity company that provides um, cybersecurity software. Um, they have 40% ARR growth, but have only just become profitable because they're spending 200 million a year on marketing. And Peel Hunt, the broker came out saying they're spending way too much money on marketing. They're not spending enough money on R&D. This isn't sustainable. Everyone's saying, oh, they're just a marketing company, basically, and their software is not that good. And their share prices since tanked. The same sort of happened even at Aviva, but on a much smaller scale, which is an industrial software company. They wanted to speed up this transition. They're transitioning from on-premise to SaaS. They wanted to cloud. They wanted to speed up this transition, brought their investment in cloud forward, said, oh, temporarily our margins are going to drop, but it's going to speed up this transition. We're going to get more people onto cloud faster. Their share price then got hit and they're actually um, Schneider Electric, who's a French company, now trying to buy them and take advantage of that share price weakness. So basically in the US, want more growth, don't care as much about margins. In the UK, a bit more protective about margins. But actually now, to be honest, that's probably a good thing for the UK companies, although a lot of their Prices have been hit because they care more about profitability with interest rates rising. It means that the UK companies have actually seen their share prices fall less radically than they have in the US. I, I suppose the other thing for the UK is, you know, the, the tech area is one, uh, as, as with many sectors where, you know, takeover interest uh, has been has been pretty uh, substantial. You mentioned uh, Viva, Viva. They're obviously in the process of being taken over. Um, or trying to be taken over by Schneider Electric. Darktrace obviously was in discussions with Tama Bravo, the US private equity company who seemed to have specifically been targeting UK software companies because of the way, you know, the UK market maybe rates them at slightly lower multiples than uh, than in the US. So so that's the kind of, I think, thing for investors to keep in mind, right, as well, um, when they're looking at some of these UK companies. And there are still a decent proportion of UK companies, right, who are either trying to transition their IT business to a software as a service business or who are, you know, branching out or starting up really with a different kind of, you know, something as a service. Yeah. So Aviva was obviously, as I mentioned, going through this transition. They're an older company. They do industrial software. They're going through this sort of painful transition to cloud and software as a service from the original on-premise software. Lots of companies are going through this and yeah, the U, as you mentioned, the UK company market seems to not value that transition as highly as the US market does, doesn't value 
growing ARR maybe as much as the US market does and is very skeptical. So when a company slips up in the transition, maybe they're they come, their revenue growth comes in below expectations or their margin slips like Aviva's does. They often get hammered by the UK market, which has meant that a lot of US and foreign investors, especially coupled with the um, weakening pound, have become interested in UK software companies. Um, Aviva, as you said, so Schneider Electric, um, who already owns 60% of Aviva, but have come in for the remaining 40% at a 40% premium to the share price. And actually, a lot of Aviva's external shareholders are asking for more money than that. They think it's worth more than a 40% premium. Darktrace, whose share price has been hit badly recently. Tom Bravo, as you said, is coming for them. That fell through, but obviously there's interest for them. And then Enos Group, who was a UK um, healthcare software company that provided software for... Um, NHS United Health, a US big US company, um, has had an offer accepted for them at a significant premium. So these foreign investors clearly are valuing these UK software companies at least 40% more than our market is, which I guess is somewhat comforting for if you're a shareholder in these businesses in the UK and you see uh, despite them maybe performing well, their share prices aren't going up or are falling. It's probably nice to know that if that keeps happening, eventually someone, some foreign buyer is going to come in and offer you 40, 50, 60% more than the value of the shares. Yeah. Obviously there's a takeover premium there, there too. But I, I kind of wonder with the UK attitude, if part of it stems from, you know, the a company you also discussed in the piece, which is Sage, obviously, you know, uh, the biggest software as a service company in the UK, or at least the biggest company trying to shift that way. And, you know, it's travails have been quite well, Noted by the UK market, and you know, in some ways, you know, the the problems it's had with shifting its business over a period of a long time now to you know be more cloud based, perhaps have made people think again about the smaller companies too. Um, but but those problems, and and maybe lead us on to some of the issues as with any new space in terms of definitions. We've touched on things like ARR. Sage itself obviously has has a, a couple of different definitions of its cloud-based business as well, some of which maybe isn't quite fully cloud yet and might not ever be entirely cloud-based. So there are things that you need to watch for as an investor and you need to try and get to the bottom of these new terms and, and how people are actually defining them, right? Yeah, so the terms that are sort of novel to this space but are important are ARR, which is annual recurring revenue, as I mentioned, and then also... Um, Net retention rate. Net retention rate basically is these are we have these customers last year. How many of these customers are we retaining this year? So ARR will show you how fast the company is growing, how many new customers it's bringing in. But the net retention rate figure will show you how it, easily it's keeping its older customers, which is obviously super important. You, if you have good software, customers should stick around with you. If you're losing old customers, that's pretty bad. Software is supposed to be a sticky product. If old customers are leaving, that probably means your software is is bad software, which isn't good. The problem with these figures is they're different for everyone. Like ARR, some companies will look at the value of the contracts that they have signed at that exact moment. Some might only use the contracts that they signed a year ago to work out their future ARR. Net retention rates even murkier. Some just look at sort of how many customers do we have 
this year and how many of those customers do we still have? So 100% would be the maximum value for that. But then some AR figures, they don't care about the, well, they don't look at the number of customers. They look at the spend of their old customers. So they could lose some customers. But if the ones they've retained are spending more money, their AR figure could go up above 100%. And actually, I saw on Twitter the other day, this investment company had written this document it was based on US SaaS companies, but to explain to investors what these different companies ARR figures actually meant. And there was loads of companies, whole paragraphs explaining how these companies calculated their ARR. So it's not really comparing often. It's not we're not comparing apples to apples. It's like apples to oranges or to bananas or to lamps or whatever. So you've got to go and look at read the definitions. And then you mentioned Sage. So Sage is trying, is they provide accounting software to small and medium-sized companies. They're one of the UK's oldest. I think they started in 1981. You have to catch up me on that, but I think that's correct. And um, they're transitioning over to the cloud. And currently, they sort of proudly say that I think around two thirds of their revenue come from cloud. But then when you break it down, 20% is from cloud native, and 20% I did. Um, I'm doing air quotations, but I guess it's a podcast, so people can't see them. But And then 40% is from cloud connected. And when you look in the definitions, cloud native means that all of the software is completely run on an external cloud. So Amazon, Google, Microsoft, for example. Whereas cloud connected, it says that some of it is done on the, on the external cloud, but some of it is still on-premise, which is what the sort of traditional software, how the traditional software is run. So actually, when you say, cloud connected, which is 40% of their revenues, that's not even fully properly cloud. And the reason why they do that is because making cloud native software and changing over to cloud native is very expensive and pretty tricky for companies to do. So the sort of halfway house, like easier way is to go cloud connected and have some stuff delivered over the cloud, but still a lot of the software delivered through on-premise. So as an investor, you need to really look into the definitions, see what they're saying, see if maybe they're sort of massaging the figures a little bit with um, sort of with um, favorable ways of explaining how their company works. And um, yeah, maybe not just don't take it all necessarily at face value. It doesn't mean they're doing anything particularly tricky, but just keep an eye on it and make sure you're comparing like for like. Yeah. Uh, as I say, this is our cover feature this week, and the, the feature itself does have uh, lots of info on uh, the various UK companies at various levels, either making this transition or, or you know, looking to offer software as a service. Um, we do also discuss, we haven't had time to discuss here, but a couple of other ways to, to value companies, also sense check their, their business and um, some info on you know, more traditional metrics such as free cash flow and cash margin, things like that as well. So do look out for that in the magazine. But we should move on to our final section. Uh, we're sticking with tech, of course. We are going to talk about the Musk Twitter takeover or non-takeover and now what seems to be back on uh, as, a, as a takeover deal. Um, Musk has agreed to buy the company at the original price, as he may have been forced to do by a court case anyway. I believe he has about three weeks maybe a couple, two and a half weeks now is the time this podcast to close the deal before the, otherwise the court case will get going and, uh, and try and, you know, resolve that issue for them. Julian, maybe why don't we start with you? 
Uh, yeah, God, so for some reason Elon Musk keeps appearing in my Twitter feed. So it's one of those. Um, the 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 actually the, the court case is interesting. So he's basically got two and a half weeks, as you said, to close this deal with Twitter, or the, or at the minimum that they come to agreement. If they can't come to agreement, then the judge in Delaware will impose a solution. So it's not quite. Yeah, so basically it gets taken out of their hands. Um, yeah. So this is why it's been reactivated. I mean, there are lots of interesting angles. It's not least the fact that about 13 billion of the 44 billion offer is tied up in bank debt that has very, very high spreads now. So the cost of that is going to be enormous for any banks that syndicate it and keep it on their balance sheet. So it's it's becoming a real headache for just about everybody involved, anyone covering it. <laughs> yeah. yeah it looked, Elon looked like he'd been taking his medication for a while, but now it's gone off, all gone off the rails. Um, so, yeah, but the, there are, the questions are already getting around. If, it is, if this deal goes through, is it going to be up there in the pantheon of some of the worst deals uh, ever made, um, which is a flattering comparison. Everyone's talking about AOL, Time Warner as being the similar top of the market, end of the bull run, um, you know, a whim of a couple of billionaires, um, and this is this is sort of being talked about in the same way. So nobody knows what's going to happen. Really, it it could go south. It could be. I mean, if, if for the sake of clarity, maybe everybody will 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 um, agree, and or, or they might even take a, pay, a cut in it. Um, that's the other option. They might cut the deal down to you know some more realistic valuation. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of this is also relevant because Elon's hit the head, you know, Musk hit the headlines really for um, intervening inadvertently or directly in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Yeah. Uh, you know, including accusations that he's restricted use of Starlink, which he vehemently denied, uh, which uh, we should add for legal reasons, I suppose. Um, but yeah, yeah so yeah, there is it's, it's a constant psychodrama. So we will, we will wait and see how it turns out. Yeah, well, any prediction is going to be wrong. I think, in my experience, was. Well, no, nonetheless, I might I might still venture one insofar as we will come on to the the geopolitical aspect of his uh, uh, life in a moment. But uh, it seems to me that you know, part of the reason he has suddenly gone back and said he will you know, do the deal is because perhaps he didn't want the, the judge to, to force it on him. I mean, as you say, the, the overriding point is that this was a deal made, you know, at the, at the start of the year in many ways, or certainly um, in the spring when valuations were higher, you know, now the offer of $54 a share for Twitter is, you know, way in excess of, of what anyone would, would feasibly offer where they're making a take, uh, takeover offer now. Um, but it seemed to me from, uh, you know, People more, certainly much more knowledgeable than I am seem to suggest because he had signed the merger agreement that he was effectively on the hook for this regardless. I mean, it might be a counterfactual. We never know now if the deal does close. We'll never know what the judge decides. But um, that, that, uh, the funding aspect is an interesting one, as you, as you say, because uh, the deal is contingent on him having the funding, and, but also he can't just tank the funding himself and say, I don't have any funding. I don't have to do the deal now. But from the bank's point of view, again, you know, this is a, a situation where they agreed to syndicate some debt, which is now looking extremely pricey. Again, I'm not sure they can actually get out of doing so. There's some uncertainties there. Um, It'd be interesting to see what the structure is. I mean, if they're using stuff like pick notes or you know anything like that, then then the the yields on those will be going through the roof. I mean, there can't be any. Yeah. They, I mean, they they can't be economical at all to to even attempt to hold them. But um, I think yeah, they may. Sustain some losses there. We we did see <laughs> Apollo, the uh, 
private equity firm, you know, that made some headlines uh, a few days ago when they said they won't be taking part in the deal again, but uh, anymore, understandably. But that that um that is a separate part of the funding, we should say. That's not the bank's funding. They were not beholden to that. They were effectively going to help fund the remaining 33 billion, which, uh, you know, I think, <laughs> so they had the option of uh, of walking away, which they not unreasonably did so, given, did given what has happened to the, the share price. Um, but yeah, you, you mentioned um, uh, Musk and you know, the question of Russia, Ukraine and Starlink, which is, you know, his satellite system, which has been uh, used in Ukraine, given the, the difficulty of using other communication technologies there. And, that, and that's been going down recently and leading to some scurrilous, perhaps rumors as to why that's going down. But the other factor in this, in all these things, you know, Twitter and Musk you know, supposedly being in communication with Putin and trying to, you know, broker a deal as far-fetched as that sound is that you know he is still in charge of tesla and tesla shares have been struggling again in recent weeks because you know a well predominantly because of this deal and the suggestion that he will be um distracted by having another company to run so you know that could be a big issue for tesla shares and that's even before we get into the the funding situation and his own holding in in tesla as well so you know, there, there are concerns there as well if you're an investor in in Tesla as to, you know, the priorities, I suppose, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, so it's likely to make their cars even more expensive, <laughs> I would have thought. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you take you just take the risk. I mean, what I can't get with the Tesla shares is why they haven't priced in the discount for the head of, for the CEA. I mean, whether or the, whether there is a discount now for the CEO. That his direction of travel seems so erratic that I, 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 they've got to be where I mean that people have made money on the back of shorting them backwards and forwards, and then they've always recovered. I mean, maybe maybe everyone unbuys the underlying story, but I mean, I, I would say that that uh, you know Tesla is going to start facing a lot more competition in the next year or two when the likes of the VW start rolling out their next range of um, electric vehicles. I, I, I yeah. It's a it's a strange one to fathom, and you you think that um, you know having having a very erratic chief executive isn't going to help would be the minimum. Well, I suppose you know there's, there's two sides to every market, and and you know certainly a lot of people would think there should be a CEO discount, but a lot of people hold Tesla shares for the opposite reason. I imagine in that you know Musk has obviously built the company, and uh, for whatever his idiosyncrasies, you know that is the kind of visionary founder that a lot of people like to like to back. Um, but like he's also yeah. the one with the satellites flying around providing the starling to everyone like how many other people have done that you can like as a businessman he's clearly incredibly successful yeah, it, it is a bit like pretty diamonds are forever isn't it i think that's he's going to end up in a, his own hotel in vegas and yeah. no one's ever going to see him again yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there's a counter theory as well is that uh, the reason why it's attracted uh, such consistent institutional support down through the years is that it's too leveraged to fail now tesla and there's too many vested interests in there that's a sort of a scurrilous way of looking at it I Dan, talking before about the um, the price as well, I'm not quite sure what the valuation criteria was initially, and I obviously have no idea about the, the actual legal position, but I think the original share price or uh, the original purchase price was put together before they, the revelations about the number of false accounts had uh, come to light, and I, I just don't know if that would have any bearing on uh, any future ne negotiations. 
from from what I've seen, I mean, again, I, I I'm certainly not a lawyer, but uh, you're, you're right. That definitely uh, that was put together before that came out. And in the interim between those two events, Musk had obviously been saying actually the these accounts are much larger than a uh, or the number of these fake accounts is much larger than I anticipated. Uh, they're trying to use that as a reason to to you know get out of the deal. From what I've seen, I think because Twitter made certain declarations as to you know material risks, we estimate our users or the number of fake users are at a certain level. And because the merger agreement was then signed, it would have been tricky to to use that. Obviously, then this whistleblower came along and there was some uncertainty then as to how the judge would view that and whether the judge would view that to be a material difference. But who knows? I mean, if the deal doesn't close in the next three weeks, we may well find out the answers to these questions. Right. There, there's another um, aspect coming up shortly, which is the the US midterms, which are about a month away now, I think, um, because if by chance the Republican Party uh, uh, gets a, a majority in both houses, uh, then all of these uh, social platforms are going to be looked at anew, um, particularly in reference to um, uh, the Communications Decency Act, uh, I think Section 230 of that, which affords them uh, protection at, at the moment from, uh, uh, in terms of um, indemnity from uh, basically members of the public organisations that have been defamed uh, or um, misrepresented. And this is an issue, obviously, for, for Facebook and for Google itself uh, and, and Twitter. And there's a lot of... Um, sort of speculation now uh, linked to how Facebook was uh, effectively manipulated by the US uh, Department of Justice and FBI in relation to revelations over Joe Biden's son. Uh, And I I would imagine that uh, Republican congressmen and women will will be taking a second look at this if they manage to uh, secure a majority. Yeah, well, we shall see that. Obviously, those midterms are next month, as is the as will be the court case if uh, the deal doesn't go through for Twitter. So uh, perhaps there'll be some kind of November surprise for tech. We will see. Uh, that brings us to uh, the end of today's show, though. Thank you to everyone. Thank you to John, to Arthur, to Mark, and to Julian. And thank you to you for listening. As usual, we'll be back next week with another Companies and Market Show. 